0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, Damien Kerrick with you. A delegation from the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture is currently in Australia inspecting places of detention. The delegation's goal is to assess the treatment of detainees in our prisons, police cells, immigration detention centres and youth detention facilities. Now, the federal government and every state and territory government in Australia has agreed to open their detention centre doors to unannounced visitors or visits by this delegation. Well, every jurisdiction, it would appear, except New South Wales. Here's State Premier Dominic Perrottet speaking at a press conference. We have an inspector, a custodial inspector in place and we have an ombudsman in place Um, and we've raised our concerns with the federal government and the advice I've received from corrections uh, here in our state is that there are security and operational concerns in relation to that matter. So we've put our position very strongly and we maintain that. Now as well as security it seems that New South Wales is also concerned about the cost of compliance both with the current well, with the delegation's current visit but also with the bigger costs of bringing our detention centres up to an international standard. Yes this does look like another classic Australian federal state standoff over funding. Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay, is not impressed. Here she is speaking to RN Breakfast.
0: When Australia makes a promise, particularly relating to a core human right, it's actually really important that we keep our word.
1: The situation's still unfolding. Australian National, Dr Alice Edwards, is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. She isn't part of the visiting four-person delegation, but this delegation will be reporting back to her. Earlier, I spoke to Alice Edwards, who's based in New York, about her expectations for the UN team's visit to Australia.
2: The Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture is carrying out What they call a periodic visit to a state party to the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And the general goals are that they will have initial conversations with the government as well as other actors such as the Australian Human Rights Commission and a range of non governmental organisations, as well as, of course, if there have been bodies put in place at the national level to visit places of detention. They'll also speak to those bodies at the federal and state level. Second, they'll then, and this is what's quite interesting about these visits, is they should be able to have unlimited access to visit any place of detention on Australian territory. And that means unannounced visits. They should be able to turn up to a detention facility, a prison, a large police uh, operation, for example, and ask to be let in. And if all goes well, that should proceed.
1: What are the priorities for the UN team's visit? Uh, do, Do you have a sense of what areas the team should give particular attention to?
2: Look, their workings are confidential, but I think they'll be looking at two specific areas. One would be the general conditions of detainees, how different prisons operate, what complaint procedures are in place? What the health facilities are like? All of those types of things around the general operation of either criminal prisons, immigration detention, even social care institutions. And the second part of their visit and what has been most publicised, of course, is they'll be having discussions with the government on OPCAT compliance. In other words, compliance with the Optional Protocol. And the main thing there is that uh, the government has committed through ratifying that protocol that they will put in Place their own national visiting bodies called national preventive mechanisms.
1: Internal sort of monitoring bodies. We'll come to that in a moment. There are reports that the New South Wales state government is objecting to unannounced inspections by the delegation. The media report says that New South Wales is concerned about operational security and safety implications of surprise visits and is requesting that they are pre arranged. Are you aware of this?
2: I've only seen what's on the the media like others. I would think that would be very unfortunate if a state the size of New South Wales is not able to accommodate either two or four persons from the delegation because sometimes they do split up to be able to visit multiple places. But I can't see really any uh, security or other reasons why a pre-approved UN delegation wouldn't be able to have access to those places.
1: And the delegation in whatever country it visits always seeks unannounced inspections?
2: Yes. I mean, this is, in a way, the, the, the purpose of these visits, whether they're conducted by national visiting bodies or by this UN inspection team, is that they're making unannounced visits. And the reason for unannounced is that When you have pre-planned and pre-prepared visits, there's usually enough time for the prison authorities to, if they wish to, to cover up areas they don't want the inspectors to visit. They can line up the people they want the inspectors to interview and so forth. And so the whole idea is that prevention of torture and inhuman treatment is best done when these are kind of unannounced visits. And certainly in many other countries, this works fine. So perhaps there's some nervousness and anxiety, but uh, my experience is the more open a, a country is and the more open governments are and the prison services and others, the better the results are all around. And are
1: these unannounced visits normally allowed in most countries that these delegations visit?
2: Look, I was just speaking at the UN General Assembly in New York and the chair of the subcommittee on the prevention of torture was on the same panel as me and she said at that meeting that they've had excellent cooperation with most governments when they're visiting and, you know, carte blanche essentially to visit the places that they wish to visit.
1: So the position of New South Wales, if it is as stated in the media reports, and if it does sort of continue, would be an enormous disappointment to you?
2: Look, I think for them as well, the goal is not, and this is what's different with this mandate, it's really not to name and shame countries and or prison services or police organisations. The reports are confidential. It's meant to be a constructive visit. It's meant to be discussing with the public authorities at the beginning of the visit, at the end of the visit. And that includes at the beginning and end of any visit to the prison to be able to discuss where they have challenges. Perhaps they also have issues that they haven't been able to resolve. And it's a four-member international team of highly experienced professionals from both law, I've noticed in this context in law and medical science and forensic science, And they'll be able to give and offer advice on a range of fronts. Is
1: the primary focus the physical conditions inside detention centres?
2: I'd say physical and psychological. I mean, being deprived of liberty is, you know, a tremendous pressure on one's psychological health. So, of course, yes. The physical conditions are very important, but likewise, the the psychological, what activities are available on a daily basis? How much fresh air do people have and time for exercise and getting outside? How loose are the conditions depending on your sentence that you've uh, been given? And of course, there are international standards on all of these things. The Nelson Mandela rules is kind of the guiding light at the international level on what standards are required in detention facilities, of course, adjusted to the context, and that's important as well.
1: Is the delegation primarily concerned with prison conditions, physical and psychological, or does it also look at broader issues around, say, high rates of incarceration for Indigenous Australians, broader kind of issues like that?
2: The scope of their visits are primarily looking at the conditions of detention But of course, where there are questions around overcrowding or overrepresentation of certain groups in society, of course, they're open to also discuss those because they go to the question about how people are being treated in detention facilities. But in contrast, it's my uh, role as UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, as well as the Committee Against Torture, to look at those broader kind of criminal justice questions around and broader immigration questions about how are people being treated more broadly across the criminal justice system.
1: Two points to pick up on that. Youth detention, is that a special focus for the delegation?
2: What they're going to focus on, they know. I'm not privy to that information. But in all visits, I can imagine that uh, youth is a key a key issue, youth, disability, women. They should also be focusing on uh, conditions for women and whether they're appropriately adapted. So, yes, I imagine that they will. And, and we know that there have been issues in a number of Australian states around youth detention facilities. So I can imagine this would be high on their priority list.
1: Well, indeed, we had a, a Royal Commission into Youth Detention, which was a response to the use of uh, spit hoods in, in Northern Territory youth detention centres. Um, and and uh, the, the, a big and important recommendation there was that the age of criminal responsibility be raised t- to 14. Uh, these are sorts of issues that you would imagine or, or would expect would be discussed and raised by the delegation?
2: I I imagine that they will raise them more at the policy level. Obviously, these questions around criminal, age of criminal responsibility are beyond, say, a particular detention facility. However, Australia is due to be reviewed by the Committee Against Torture. So they've got a full year of uh, focus uh, in the context of preventing torture and other inhuman treatment. And there, of course, in the past, the Committee Against Torture has asked Australia about the age of criminal responsibility and they generally promote an age of 14 as the age of criminal responsibility. And I'm aware that in some Australian states it's uh, as low as 10 years old.
1: Mm. You also mentioned a moment ago immigration. Presumably the delegation will want to visit immigration detention centres. Does the remit of the delegation also include offshore detention centres?
2: I understand on this visit that they're only visiting territorial Australia there are obviously complexities in relation to the offshore facilities because they are in other sovereign countries. So, to visit those places, they would also need the approval of the other countries involved. So, I'm not I'm not aware and I haven't heard that they're intending to travel to Nauru or Manus Island.
1: Now, now the UN delegation is visiting Australia, but under OPCAT, signatories are supposed to also create their own independent oversight mechanisms... How satisfied are you with Australia's progress in creating those mechanisms, those internal mechanisms, monitoring mechanisms?
2: Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting thing, Damien, because in fact, under the Convention Against Torture, which Australia ratified in 1989. The primary obligation there is to prevent torture and Article 2 says by any legislative, administrative, practical, procedural, other measures. And we've known for a very long time, over 40 years, that at the international level, that these visiting bodies are one of the best ways to prevent torture. It kind of opens up closed places And spaces, which is exactly what prisons and immigration hold and other facilities are. So even under the Convention Against Torture, the parent treaty, there is an expectation that a state and a a state in this context, I mean, a country has these visiting bodies and allows access to outsiders to go in and inspect the prisons. So the ratification of the optional protocol, which is the the child, I guess, of the Convention Against Torture, makes it a much more concrete obligation. But in fact, it's been a very good practice and understood as such for a very long time. And of course, we know that some states and territories do have visiting bodies. It's not, too much of a stretch to shift them into being what's known as a national preventive mechanism in the language of uh, the OPCAT. So, Australia, as I understand it, as a federal system, has left it to the states to decide which bodies they'll designate. So, they don't need to establish brand new ones. They can give that authority to existing bodies.
1: And so far, I think the federal government has said our ombudsman at the federal level will have that role and WAACT and Tasmania have identified who will comprise their monitoring bodies. But New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, the three biggest states population-wise have not yet done
2: so. Is that a yes, source and of concern? Actually, not just population-wise, but they also hold the most people in prison. So it is significant that they haven't yet come on board. I'm sure the, the subcommittee and the visiting body will be discussing this with the federal government and with the state governments. Um, the deadline for doing so uh, is January 2023, and that in itself is an extended deadline. I mean, you might like to know that there are 91 states parties to the OPCAT globally and 77 have national preventive mechanisms. So there are only a small portion of countries that haven't yet managed to Establish or designate these NPMs, as they're known. Sorry for so many acronyms. It is the UN. <laughs> it is the UN world of acronyms. But I, I mean, I, I would encourage those uh, states of Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland to see this as a, you know, a way that they can really improve their systems, and that they can, you know, if they had national preventive mechanisms, I'm pretty sure the subcommittee would have delayed their visit. They would have come another time, or you know if you've got functioning national preventive mechanisms, the need for international oversight is still there, but it's it's lessened.
1: So it's a week-long
2: visit, is that right? Almost two weeks, actually. It looks like it's nearly yeah ten days or so.
1: Still, not not a great amount of time for such a a vast country like Australia with with huge distances and and very different systems and very different kinds of detention centres.
2: I I would agree with that. I think the limitation is purely down to UN funding resources, and that's the normal length that they undertake these visits. And of course, all countries need to be treated the same, kind of irrespective of their geographical complexities. So I totally agree. They'll only be able to visit. You know, I don't know how many many places. Also, of course, if they want to go to other institutions like social care institutions, police stations, where they have uh, police hold, psychiatric institutions, and so forth. So, they would have done a, a good uh, calibration before visiting and and seeing where they can get to and uh, how many how many people they can they can speak to and how many visits they can conduct.
1: Does the delegation identify hotspots or areas of concern? I'm wondering, say, for instance, um, uh, w- will it go to prisons which have a reputation or, or around which there's been conversation of problems? Or does it just seek to get a, I don't know, a kind of a statistical snapshot of what's going on? Or does it want to go to the areas where it feels warrant closer attention?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. That is up to the delegation to decide. Sometimes it's it's useful to visit a facility that, for example, has a good reputation, because then you kind of get a, a countrywide benchmark, after which visiting other places of detention, which perhaps, you know, are public information available says that uh, might require more scrutiny. Of course, the subcommittee also has received a range of submissions from Australian bodies, the Australian National Human Rights Commission, but also a whole range of uh, NGOs, legal centres and others that I've I've seen. So they will have a lot of information. They would have had a lot of information in advance and they'll be selecting on on that basis.
1: So what happens, the delegation have this 10-day, two-week visit, they go back to the UN, they type it up. What happens to that report?
2: Yeah, so the report is a confidential report. Even before that, they will meet with the government prior to departure from the country, and they will give them potentially their first impressions and areas that they think the government and state governments also are are doing very well on, and then areas, uh, problematic areas. They will go back, prepare their report, transmit that to the government, and potentially there's a back and forth on that. It's up to the government to decide whether that report is made public or not. More and more countries are making those reports public. It's not a requirement to make them public, but generally one, ex- one would expect that a country like Australia where, you know, transparency is everything in a democracy, that in due course, even if not immediately, the report would be made public.
1: Would you urge the government to release the report?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it- you know, if it's only the government and the authorities uh, with the SPT having these confidential discussions, the reason why they're confidential is so that the governments and, or governments we're talking in all places in the world can have a confidence in the subcommittee that this is going to be constructive dialogue, that there are going to be recommendations, that it's not this kind of idea to name and shame the government. But on the other hand, with the country such as Australia, a democratic, industrialised country. You know, one expects uh, the reports to be made public. And also, once they're public, other actors who are committed also to improving Australia's system of prisons and other places of detention can really use those to lobby the government, to support the government, and so forth. And and the whole idea being, of course, that people are treated humanely uh, in detention.
1: Now... You gave a keynote address at the recent Australian National OpCat Symposium, and you spoke about Australia's imprisonment rates. How does Australia compare with other countries when it comes to imprisonment rates and an expenditure on the, uh, the sort of prison sector?
2: Yes, I mean I, I was quite uh, surprised at. At this, that Australia spends the most on its incarceration system in the world after the United States per capita, and state and territory governments spend approximately 5.2 billion Australian dollars annually. They've also the fastest growing imprisonment rates, which means imprisonment is, is growing over time, which is problematic if crime is not increasing at the same rate. And of course, one would expect that we would have better and better methods of reducing crime over time rather than worse and therefore worse, uh, higher rates of incarceration. So it is is an interesting country from that perspective. And uh, I mean, I did want to say one thing, Damien, I do understand that there are some Questions around who's going to fund the OPCAT bodies that the state and federal government need to put in place. And I understand that is one of the holdups of why New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland haven't yet designated or established their NPMs. And when you consider the amount of money that is spent on imprisonment every year, I mean, these bodies are not expensive. We're talking about individuals having that capacity to go and visit places of detention so it's kind of a bit conflictual to on the one hand say we don't have the money and on the other hand realize that you you spend more than any other country in the world after the United States.
1: Is that something of uh, enormous concern to you, that after the USA, which, let's face it, is, is not what we'd want to aspire to in terms of prison rates and, and prison populations, is it a, of enormous concern to you that Australia appears to be a high-expenditure country in that regard?
2: I think that it does give the country pause for questioning why the rates are so high you know, and whether those incarceration rates are really necessary.
1: And a final question. I mean, what do we know about the health profile of prisoners in Australia? Uh, Do they have other sort of attributes that you think we need to think about?
2: I only have as much information as what I've read. And I do understand that there is a high level of mental illness in Australian prisons. I mean, Generally, being deprived of liberty is a traumatic event. And the idea is that being removed from the community is the punishment for the crime. And after that, of course, the conditions should be humane. There should be a focus on rehabilitation. Eventually, people will return back to their communities. And it's in everybody's interest that the focus is, is much more on rehabilitation and gearing people up to be able to return to communities and become productive members of that society. I mean, one thing we haven't touched on too, Damien, of course, is the incarceration rate of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders is still far higher than it it should be. And as I understand it, and the statistics I have from the Australian Bureau of Statistics is, 202 people per 100,000 of the adult population are detained in Australia. So that's 200 to 100,000 people. But of Indigenous Australians, there are currently 2,315 persons per 100,000 adults. So it's 10 times the rate of other Australians. And that really is something that uh, still needs to be investigated, despite a whole range of efforts, obviously, through commissions and other work that many actors are doing. But that certainly, I'm sure there'll be, the subcommittee will also be asking questions about that for sure.
1: Dr Alice Edwards, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report.
2: Thanks very much, Damien.
1: Damien Carrick with you. You're listening to The Law Report on ABCRN. On Monday, Justice Jane Jago was sworn in as the newest member of the High Court of Australia.
2: I, J. Margaret Jago, do swear that I will bear true allegiance to His Majesty King Charles III, his heirs.
1: For the first time, a majority, four out of seven, of the members of the High Court of Australia are women. ANU Associate Professor Heather Roberts attended the swearing in ceremony.
0: What was really notable for me, Damien, was how far we've come from this moment compared to when Mary Gordon was sworn in 35 years ago as the first woman on the High Court. When she was sworn in, none of the speakers really knew how to deal with the fact that she was a woman. The Attorney General never mentioned it at all. Another uh, member of the bar didn't want to make any sexist comments by referring to her achievements as first woman. But on Monday, the first thing the Attorney General said after acknowledging country was the fact that diversity matters, that this is a historic moment and a a diverse judiciary is a better judiciary. And that was the key moment.
1: So diversity and the historic moment, you know, majority four out of seven now women, they were both explicitly acknowledged.
0: They were, and from the outset of the Attorney-General's speech, and I think that sends a really important signal about what our Attorney-General values in the judiciary, and the fact that the search for judges is going to be as wide as possible to make sure we have the best possible talent and the broadest range of experiences on our highest courts.
1: What did you learn about Justice Jago from the welcoming speeches?
0: What was really powerful from the welcomes and also from her honor speech was the unusual background she brings to the court. She's a child of migrants. Both of her parents grew up in orphanages in the UK and they came to Australia for a better opportunity. And Justice Jago was explicit about how much the opportunities Australia has provided her mattered in her life. She went to public school uh, and she then went on to university and credits the opportunities and uh, openness of Australia with her success.
1: And was that experience and that part of her narrative and story mirrored in some of the other speeches?
0: Yes, the fact that we have a justice who is coming from an unusual background and brings a broad experience, both of life and social uh, dealings, but also legal practice. She comes from the Land and Environment Court, so she's done criminal law, she's done constitutional law, and she's served on courts for over a decade now, so she brings incredible experiences before her appointment to the bench and as a justice.
1: Associate Professor Heather Roberts, uh, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report.
0: Lovely to speak to
1: you, Damien. That's The Law Report for this week. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover
0: more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.